Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. President Trump originally won the Republican nomination by appealing largely to what used to be the Tea Party. A lot of Tea Party Republicans ended up embracing Donald Trump. In fact, I think a lot of the support that might otherwise have gone to Rand Paul, who you know was a Tea Party favorite, who went to Washington in 2010 as part of the Tea Party movement, um, a lot of his thunder was stolen by Trump who appealed a lot to Tea Party Republicans. Well, when Trump went to Washington, uh, he wasn't exactly praising the Tea Party, but few people expected that he went to Washington to bury it either. But that's exactly what he just did uh, by agreeing to this budget deal with the Democrats. The Tea Party is dead. Uh, President Trump just put the final nail into the coffin, lowered it in the ground, and covered it in dirt. The problem is, or the irony is, nobody seems happier about this than the corpse itself, right? The Tea Party Republicans are not up in arms against the commander-in-chief, right? Everybody still loves Donald Trump. I mean, even the father of the Tea Party, uh, Rick Santelli, right? He is credited for getting it all going. Where's Rick? Where are his tears? Where's the eulogy, right, as his child is being buried? Again, no criticism. Everybody thinks Trump is great. Just as I said, you know, I was back at uh, at uh, Freedom Fest, which they should have just renamed Trump Fest. Donald Trump is simply uh, continuing all of the policies that he once criticized in order to become president. Because when he was running uh, for the Republican nomination, of course, he was extremely critical of the big deficits Uh, under Obama. He was even critical of the big deficits under Bush. That was one of the things I liked about Trump was that he was criticizing big spenders of both parties. He was supposed to be different. He was rising above politics. He was going to drain the swamp and draining the swamp meant putting an end uh, to the deficits. But what Trump just agreed to was to put an end to any restraint on the deficits. Basically, we blew up what the Republicans achieved in 2011. That was the the Budget Act in 2011 that was passed as a result of the Tea Party and the pressure that they put on Barack Obama. Clearly, Barack Obama would have spent even more money, but for the efforts of Tea Party Republicans 
to uh, you know break that, to push against that. And, and so Obama was not able to do as much damage as he otherwise would, but for uh, that effort. I think the same thing happened uh, with Clinton. I mean, one of the reasons that Clinton was able to produce these statistic accounting surpluses at the end of his second term was because the Republicans took over Congress and put the brakes on a lot of the extra spending that uh, Clinton otherwise would have liked to have, but the Republicans were not allowing it to happen. So what's happening now is that the progress that was made in 2011 has now been lost. I mean, all of the the um, grandstanding by the Republicans and the government shutdowns, it was all in an effort to get that budget deal done so that there would be some reduction in, in future deficits. Basically, what Trump is agreeing to do is massive increases in government spending that blow apart those prior restraints by basically removing them. And we're getting huge increases in military spending, warfare spending. We're getting huge increases in welfare spending. And President Trump is tweeting about this as if this is a huge victory, as if this is a a great outcome for him and for the country. This is not a victory. This is a defeat. I mean, if you care about fiscal responsibility, if you care about reigning in government, I mean, that's what the Republicans supposedly cared about when they, you know, forced this bill through Congress, right, uh, was getting, getting a handle on government spending. Well, now all of that progress has been lost. How is that a victory? If Donald Trump campaigned on that slogan, send me to Washington so I can make sure that we get rid of all of the constraints on government spending that the Tea Party Congress enacted, you think he would have won? He never would have made it out of the primary if he was promising to do that. He is letting down all the conservatives who voted for them, yet supposedly all those conservatives still support him. Now we'll see uh, if he maintains that support, uh, given that he has stabbed everybody that supported him in the back with this deal. But look, this is exactly what I was saying was going to happen before Trump even took the oath of office. I said that the Trump administration was going to produce the biggest deficits we'd ever seen. And I think the deficits are actually bigger than what I predicted, despite the fact that we haven't even got the infrastructure bill that I think I believed would have been passed by now. I think we're going to get something on infrastructure, which is going to make the deficits even bigger. But even without that, we are already higher probably in the, the deficits than I would have forecast. And of course, Trump you know, was supposedly a deficit hawk, even though he never campaigned about specific cuts to government programs. He was very critical of President Obama and of President Bush for the amount of debt that was run up. And he even talked about paying off the debt and getting rid of the debt and stuff like that. Well, now all he's gotten rid of is any restraint on larger deficits. Now, for the president to brag about the fact that we've got more military spending, but in order to get more military spending, we have to allow more spending on you know welfare or whatever, on, this, on domestic, but it's worth the cost. Why? We already increased military spending the year before. Why do we have to keep increasing military spending? I mean, it's not like the problem that America has is that we're not spending enough on the military. A lack of spending on the military is not a problem. We don't need to spend more on the military. And in order to get extra money to be spent on the military, we need to spend more money 
on domestic programs. This is a lose-lose. What we need is for Republicans to agree to cut military spending and for the Democrats to agree to cut domestic spending and then make that kind of deal. That's the kind of deal that's bad politics for the Republicans and the Democrats, but that's good for the nation. That's the type of negotiation that President Trump should be leading, right? A deal that makes government smaller, a deal that makes deficits smaller. Instead, we're getting the opposite. Everybody's getting their cake and eating ours too. The Republicans don't have to sacrifice anything because they get more military spending. The Democrats don't have to sacrifice anything because they get more domestic spending. All the politicians win and America loses. I mean, why is Trump bragging about presiding over an outcome like that? That is not why he was sent to Washington. He was sent to drain the swamp, not make it deeper, not pour more water into the swamp. But that is exactly what he's doing and then bragging about it as if he's done something good because we've averted a government shutdown. A government shutdown would be a good thing if it resulted in smaller government, if it resulted in fiscal responsibility. You know, they have now again suspended the debt ceiling until sometime in 2021 after the next uh, presidential election, the next round of congressional elections. Uh, What's good about that? I mean, all we've done is say the sky is the limit for the next few years when it comes to deficits. And, you know, all the coverage that I'm reading, too, about these big deficits that are being produced uh, as a result of the massive increase in government spending uh, that this compromise allows. And remember, we already cut taxes. So we, we, we diminished the government's revenue and now we're increasing dramatically the government's expenditures. So the deficits are skyrocketing. But all of the reporting, uh, they are simply regurgitating government propaganda when it comes to deficits by talking about the deficit at being one trillion. Look, we're much closer to two trillion with this thing being passed than one trillion because, again, they are simply reporting on the official budget deficit. That's a bunch of nonsense. The official deficit ignores a large part of the actual deficit. It's an accounting gimmick. It's like corporations, you know, with pro forma earnings, right? Because they want to exclude a bunch of stuff that they don't want to count. Well, it's a pro forma deficit because the government doesn't include a lot of spending. They say, oh, this spending is off budget. That's off budget. That's off budget. And so they end up with a budget deficit that is much lower than what they're actually borrowing. What these reporters need to do is look at the national debt itself and look at how much debt is added to that number every year. So if the official budget deficit is $1 trillion, but in that year the national debt grows by $2 trillion, then that means the deficit wasn't $1 trillion. It was $2 trillion because the government actually borrowed $2 trillion to finance the spending that year. If they want to pretend they only borrowed $1 trillion, okay, let them pretend that. But why should we believe that? Why should the media uh, believe that? You know, I have a feeling at some point the media is going to start reporting this honestly, at least uh, until Trump is out of office, because it will work against Trump in the 2020 election. In fact, you know, it's not only the deficits that I ultimately expect the media to report honestly. I think it's going to be about the true state of the economy. You know, because right now, if you look at the uh, the way the media has been reporting on the economy, they pretty much accept the uh, the administration's line and Wall Street's line that the economy is doing great, that, you know, we have a booming economy and 
you know, we, you know, at least Trump has that going for him. But what's going to happen when the media actually starts reporting the economy as being weak, which it is? Obviously, that is going to completely change the, the tenor of the conversation. Now, you might wonder, why isn't the media already doing that? I mean, why isn't the media already pointing out that the economy is not nearly as strong as the president suggests? I mean, I have a feeling that they're waiting until later in the game in order to pull that switch. I mean, I think that the media, which is generally controlled by the left, is happy with the narrative being that the economy is good now because they have plenty of time to report on how bad the economy is in the future as we get closer to the election and blaming it on Trump. You know, because if the media adopted that strategy now, well, then Trump and the Republicans would have the opportunity to plan for it and, and know that, okay, the battle lines are drawn. Now we're going to you know come up with our political playbook uh, for the election. Uh, but if the Democrats and the media fool the Republicans and Trump into believing that they're going to concede that the economy is good and that they're going to go after the president on other issues, then the president is not going to be prepared for this political fight. I mean, maybe it's like, if you're uh, running uh, a, you know, a football team, you're coaching a football team, and you're really known for your pass attack, and you're going to be playing another team, and they expect you to continue with these long bombs and a certain type of offense, and so they, they practice that, and they get pre- prepared for that, and they go over all your old plays, and they show up on the field assuming that you're going to be this big passing team and then you barely throw any passes and you concentrate on your running game and maybe they weren't prepared for that. They didn't expect that. They didn't practice for that. And then you won the game because you did something that your opponents were not prepared for. So I think that this is going to be kind of a a switch more at the last minute or maybe the way Rocky, I think it was like Rocky 2 or something where he's, all of a sudden he went from southpaw to, to fighting like a right-handed fighter and it threw off Apollo Creed because he didn't expect it. I think what's going to happen is at some point the media is going to turn on Trump. The media is going to basically say that the economy is lousy. They are going to get behind the numbers and and talk about the fact that this has been a phony recovery, that it's been built on a mountain of debt, that it's built on fake statistics and artificially low interest rates uh, by the uh, by the Federal Reserve. In fact, I think everything that Donald Trump used to say as a candidate is going to be used against him as president. And in fact, there's no better evidence of that than if you read. Elizabeth Warren's op-ed that came out on Monday. And if you read that thing, and if you read the first half of it, I mean, it might have been, well has been written by me. I mean, you could be reading something that I wrote. In fact, Elizabeth Warren starts off by taking credit for having warned about the problems before the 2008 financial crisis. She was warning about the housing bubble, warning about lax lending standards, warning about leverage, warning about securitization, and, and, and warning about subprime and lax lending standards, and all kinds of stuff. Now, I, I doubt that that's true. I mean, I highly doubt that she was warning much about anything back then, but somehow she's taking credit for basically having been like Peter Schiff, like, like me, and she was out there warning. And she mentioned that even though she was warning about the problems in the housing market and the lending market, that nobody was paying attention to her warnings, that her cries were falling on deaf ears. And then we had the financial crisis, right? So she saw it, she warned about it, nobody paid attention to her. She was a Cassandra. And you know, then we had the collapse, right? So she's claiming credit 
for having ha having warned about that. And now she's saying that she sees similar problems today in the corporate bond market, in the economy overall, in the hallowing out of our manufacturing sector, a manufacturing recession, the high levels of corporate debt, of individual debt, credit card debt, student loans, auto loans. She sees a gigantic debt bubble. She thinks that this bubble could prick like the 08 bubble, that we can be headed for another financial crisis, that she could be right again. She predicted the last crisis. No one listened to her. Now she sees similar warning signs of another crash coming. And again, you know, no one is listening. We need to act before it's too late, right? That's what she's claiming. All that is true. Now, whether or not she predicted the 08 crash, I have my doubts about that. But she is correct in, in forecasting another one. And in fact, you know, a lot of this stuff, for all I know, uh, the, the person who really ghostwrit this op-ed for her, maybe that person got some stuff from me. I mean, I used to think when Donald Trump was, was running, a lot of the stuff that was coming out of the Trump campaign really looked like it was lifted from my podcast or from a commentary I wrote. I really think there were people in the Trump organization that were, you know, borrowing some of the stuff that I was saying because what I was saying was highly critical of the phony economic recovery under uh, Obama and the way it was being misreported uh, by the media, by Wall Street. And of course, that was Trump's game plan to call attention to the phony nature of the so-called recovery, to point out that it was all based on cheap money supplied by the Fed, that it was just a bubble masquerading as a, as a, as a recovery, that the rich were getting richer temporarily, and all this was uh, sowing the seeds of a major collapse when the bubble deflated, that this was phony, and it was all being hidden uh, beneath a veneer of uh, fraudulent government statistics that really hid the truth, that the real unemployment rate was much higher uh, than what the statistics claimed, that the real GDP was not as strong as the statistics claimed. So he basically hit all the nails on the head and he appealed to the electorate by calling out the phony nature of the economy. Well, that is exactly what Elizabeth Warren was doing in her op-ed. She is not buying any of the BS from Trump that we have the greatest economy ever. She is saying the economy is on the verge of another collapse, just like it was in 2008. She is 100% correct. It's actually on the verge of an even worse crisis. Now, she claims she saw the last one coming. I doubt that, but I saw that one coming, right? And I believe that the one that's about to come is going to be much worse than that one. And now she's claiming another one is coming. And if it starts before the 2020 election, now she can claim credit for being right again, right? But even if it isn't, she is going to run if she's the nominee. But I believe any nominee is going to run on this exact platform that the economy, the recovery under Trump is phony, right? That it isn't real that it's the byproduct of artificially low interest rates. And of course, interest rates will likely be back at zero by the time the election rolls around. We will be doing more quantitative easing. So Elizabeth Warren or, or anyone else who happens to win the nomination, if they take that approach, that they call out Trump for presiding over a bubble and a phony economy based on debt where the rich got richer with tax cuts and everybody else got screwed, I think that is a winning formula. After all, it worked for Trump, right? Trump got elected by calling out the phony nature of the recovery and the fake statistics and by criticizing all the debt 
that had been accumulated uh, under Obama, right? Doubling the national debt, accumulating more debt than all the presidents that preceded him. So if it worked for Trump, it'll work for the Democrats. It's the same strategy because now Trump is going to be in the position that Clinton was in, having to defend the economy but the voters are going to know the economy is lousy. I mean, that's why Trump is already taking every opportunity he can to advance the lie that the economy is great, because he knows that voters have to believe it's great, even though it's not. But I think that the Democrats are going to have an easy time uh, selling the voters on the idea that the economy is lousy. And once again, we have a phony economy that is hiding behind fake government statistics that the unemployment rate is not really as low and the economy not nearly as strong as the president suggests. I mean, look, just look at the economic data that came out again today. We keep getting this. We got the uh, national Fed National Activity Index that came out, uh, seventh straight month where that was down. This is the biggest losing streak in that index since 2009. Today, we got more weak economic data. We got um, existing home sales, June. You know, worse than expected, but bigger than that, it's the 16th month in a row that the index has been down on a, on a yearly basis, 16 months in a row. And that is despite the big drop in mortgage rates. I mean, imagine where we would be had mortgage rates not come down. Then we got the Richmond Fed manufacturing number. Not only did it miss expectations, but it crashed. It crashed to the lowest level in over six years. I mean, this would not be happening if we if we had a great economy. And believe me, the numbers are going to be much worse the closer we get to the election. So the Democrats are going to be able to borrow not only a page from the Trump playbook, but the whole playbook and be able to say the economy is lousy and we're going to change it. Right. Remember, Trump message was it's a phony economy. The numbers are bullshit. The government is lying to you. I'm going to fix it. And the way I'm going to fix it is make government smaller. And then I'm going to cut your taxes, right? I'm going to get rid of all these regulations that cause the problem. The Democrats are going to have the same message of the economy stinks, right? It's lousy. It's a phony recovery. It's all based on cheap money and credit. And, 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 but they might focus on gimmicks and tax cut for the rich and deregulation, right? But their solution to the lousy economy is going to be more government. And instead of promising tax cuts, they're going to be promising free stuff. That's it, right? And I think it is going to work. I think the markets are underestimating how effective Trump's strategy is going to work when it is implemented by the Democrats. And Trump is now going to be in the position of trying to defend the so-called great economy just like Hillary Clinton had to defend the Obama economy. And that was a difficult task because the economy really was a mess. Even though the statistics were not, uh, the voters knew it. Well, the same voters are going to come to the same conclusion again because Trump is going to be asking for four more years and the voters are going to say, for what? You promised to make America great again and you didn't. My income is no higher than it was. In fact, maybe it's even lower. Maybe the cost of living has gone up more than their paychecks. They have more debt now than they had four years ago, so their net worths are not higher. Yes, for some people, the stock market has gone up, uh, but who knows where it will be uh, in November 2020. 
Real estate is already rolling over. There's already real estate that's collapsing. I mentioned on the podcast that I did last week that home ownership among African-Americans is at an all-time record low. I mean, Trump is trying to pretend that African-Americans are doing so great because the unemployment rate is so low. But if that's really the case, why is home ownership also so low? That fact really shows you a lot more about what's going on in the black community uh, than what the government is trying to pretend or what Trump is trying to pretend by pointing to the, the low unemployment numbers. And believe me, the president is not going to get any higher percentage of the black vote than he got last time. And who knows, he might even get a lower percentage uh, of the black vote. And he's going to get a lower percentage of a lot of the key demographics in those swing states, which are the only reason that he became president. But the real danger that the markets are still not um, you know, contemplating is not only that the president is going to lose the next election, which the markets are not even considering that possibility at all, because if, it, if the markets were, the markets would be tanking. Uh, but the, what they're not considering is not only that the Republicans are going to lose the next election, but how ineffective the Republican minority is going to be in pushing back against the socialist agenda and the bigger government spending and the larger deficits that are going to take place. Because first of all, the Trump has already basically convinced most conservatives to give up every conservative principle they already had, right, in order to support the president and what he's done so far. And this budget disaster is the icing on the cake. But when you get all these Republicans supporting these massive increases in government spending and the debt, right, and then, you know, suspending the debt ceiling and throwing all caution to the wind when it comes to fiscal responsibility, it's going to be very hard for those Republicans, those that still manage, you know, to get reelected, it's going to be very hard for them to turn on a dime. They can't go from not giving a damn about the deficits to caring about the deficits, you know, in one election cycle, the same people. It's not going to happen. They have basically been castrated when it comes to uh, opposition to deficits. So when the new Democratic Congress comes in with a Democratic president and they want to borrow trillions and trillions of dollars for all sorts of social programs, the one thing Republicans won't be able to say is we can't do that because we don't have the money. We can't do that because it's going to cause too big a jump in the deficits. They, you know, they, you know that, that, those horses have left the barn. They can't play that card again because they're going to look like complete hypocrites, which of course they are, but at least that will make it even more obvious that they're hypocrites. So they're not going to be able to object to any of this spending based on the fact that we can't afford it and that we're going to have to borrow money, especially since the Democrats will be able to say you were all in favor of going into debt and borrowing money when it was about giveaways for the rich. When you wanted to cut taxes for corporations, you didn't give a damn how much of the debt uh, we accumulated. Or when you wanted to spend more money on the military, you didn't care how much money we had to borrow to do that. But all of a sudden you care when we want to spend money on students, on the elderly, on people who are sick, or unemployed people, or low skills. When we want to spend money on the people, average Americans, all of a sudden you're worried about the deficits. But when you're spending money on rich corporations, you couldn't give a damn, right? That is not a good optic. And so the Republicans are going to have to back out of that fight. So in other words, the, the breaks that were applied during the Obama administration or even during the Clinton administration by the Republicans won't be there. So when it comes to deficit spending and big government, it's going to be all gas and, and no breaks. You know, that is another reason why I get so furious with the Republicans who have signed on 
uh, to what's going on, who are just blindly following you know, the Pied Piper over the edge of this cliff. I mean, you can't just be loyal to your party. You can't be loyal to the president. You have to be loyal to the Constitution, and you have to be loyal to principles. Because you can't surrender that because it's easy. Sure, the easiest thing to do is get in line behind the president, right? Because a bunch of Republicans think he's great because they believe all this nonsense. And so you want to you wanna be a team player. You want to be in support of someone who's popular. But what a good leader does is if something is popular, but he knows it's wrong, he stands against it. He doesn't just blow with the political winds. He pushes against those winds, right? Very few people are actually doing that. And a big price is going to be paid in terms of lost credibility uh, when it comes to uh, trying to do something about these problems once the Republicans are out of power in Washington and the Democrats are back in charge. And so not only is this, of course, bad for the markets, it is bad for the nation, right? I mean, if you thought deficits were big under Trump, and they are big, they are enormous. In fact, you know, Trump constantly wants to talk about how everything he does is the greatest. Well, pretty much the only thing he is doing that's the greatest is the greatest amount of debt. He is producing that. And maybe this is the greatest budget disaster of all times. So he has you know, signed on to that. He has negotiated the worst deal ever when it comes to a budget deal. So that's maybe that's a record for the, the worst, right? But if he wants to you know, put spin on this and claim that this big loser of a deal constitutes a win, you know, how long are the Republicans going to will, be willing to, to look beyond that? I mean, and certainly, too, I think that when it gets to 2020, I do not think that the Trump base is going to be nearly as loyal as they are today when they are staring recession face, massive deficits, and lots of inflation. I mean, the only thing Trump is going to have going for him is that the Democratic nominee is a socialist. And it really won't be people voting for Trump so much as they'll be voting against that. But the question is, will the Republicans be able to win based on saying, don't vote for my opponent because things will get a lot worse? But Or will it be easier for the Democrats to win saying, we'll make it better. We'll fix what the Democrats broke. Because remember, too, it's going to be pretty easy for the Democrats to claim that Obama fixed the economy, that Obama inherited a very weak economy from Bush, that there was a bubble under Bush, which popped, and Obama was getting us back on track. He handed over a pristine growing economy to Trump, and Trump screwed it all up with tax cuts and deregulation, and now we had another bubble, and now it's burst, and now we need to have another Democrat come in and clean up that mess. But believe me, as bad as Obama was, whoever follows Trump is going to be much worse. And again, as I just said, there's not going to be any opposition. There's not going to be any Republican movement that's the equivalent of the Tea Party that's going to be able to push against this because there's not even any Tea Party Republicans that are going to be running, right? People are going to be running on the Trump ticket. These are Trump Republicans, so people are going to be running with that message, and they're not going to be in any position uh, to represent any type of opposition to the big increases in deficits and government spending that are going to result from the implementation of this socialist agenda. You know, ironically, and it shows you how people don't understand this, but the, the news was announced overnight and the immediate reaction in the gold market was for gold to drop about 10 bucks. And, you know, gold 
I think by the time it came into our time zone, we had a, a slight positive number in the bond market, but you know, not much. And uh, the dollar rose. I mean, the dollar index was up about a half a percent today. The dollar was stronger across the board. That was the knee-jerk reaction among traders was, oh, we've averted a, a, a uh, budget problem. There's not going to be a government shutdown, right? Oh, you know, the government's not going to default on its debt, at least not now, right? Because we've raised the debt ceiling. So, you know, we've averted this fiscal uh, crisis. We diffused the fiscal time bomb, and this is supposedly good news. Well, it's not good news if you actually understand the implications of this, right? What this means is, yes, the government's not going to shut down because we're going to spend all kinds of money instead. The reason we're not going to have a budget crisis today is because we're going to have a bigger budget crisis in the future because we are going to go deeper and deeper into debt. Again, this is not about America paying its bills. This is about America giving more time to not pay its bills. So the mountain of unpaid bills is going to get stacked much, much higher as a result of this. And so because we're going to have bigger deficits, which means the Fed is going to have to print even more money to monetize them. So a growing government, which is going to usurp more resources out of the productive private sector and commandeer them for itself, a bigger, more bloated government that is financing itself with debt and inflation, is not bearish for gold and it's not bullish for the dollar. It is the opposite of that. If you understood, if the markets understood what this means, gold would be soaring today. The dollar would be tanking. And not only would the dollar be tanking, but long-term bonds would be tanking. Now, bonds actually went down, right? That is the right thing for bonds to have done on this is bonds should have gone down. It's just that they should have gone down much more. And in fact, if you look at the yield curve, it has flattened considerably on the short end. It's no longer really inverted. It's kind of flat, but it's now steepening on the long end. The difference between the, the, the twos and the fives or the, the fives and the tens is growing. And that is what I've been predicting. Why is this happening? This is because the inflationary threat is finally being perceived and reflected. Now, this is just a little bit. This is the tip of a huge iceberg. We are just getting going. The yield curve is going to steepen much, much more. And interest rates are going to rise because the inflationary implications of what the president just agreed to are clear. And it's not a coincidence, too, that next week the Fed is about to lower interest rates and take the first step on the journey back to uh, uh, 0% interest rates in QE4. So you have the government revving up uh, the fiscal stimulus, right? We're getting ready to blow apart uh, the spending caps. We're going to dramatically increase government spending, so on, uh, you know, welfare, warfare spending. And now the Fed is getting ready to accommodate it all. The Fed is going to allow it. They are complicit in this. They are going to finance it. So we've got massive monetary stimulus, massive fiscal stimulus. This is terrible news for the U.S. dollar. It is terrible uh, news for the U.S. economy. This is stagflation. This is not going to engender economic growth. Governments going deep into debt and printing lots of money is not a recipe for success. Yes, it has been a recipe for blowing bubbles in the past, but those bubbles were not a success. They were a failure. And every time the bubbles popped, they repeated the failure. And again, everybody expects that the Fed could do this again and, and have the same result. But what they are underestimating is the enormity of the problem, the size that would be required. 
the in order to create a bubble larger than the one we got now, I think it would take an impossible amount of air that there is no way the Fed could do this without destroying the dollar. And that exactly is exactly what they are saying the market's up for. They're saying the market's up for a dollar crisis. And, uh, you know, so gold should be going up. The, uh, the dollar should be going down. Now, it didn't happen for today. The markets don't understand this. But investors that do understand this, right, people who are not ignorant should make, take an opportunity to profit from the ignorance of others. This dip of gold was a buying opportunity. This rally in the dollar, a selling opportunity. And what all of this is going to do, of course, is hasten the demise of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. I mean, the dollar cannot be the reserve currency with, with this kind of inflation, with this kind of uh, you know, uh, fiscal profligacy. You know, it's not a coincidence that in 2011, right, that was the year that the Tea Party Republicans were able to get the, the Budget Act passed and put in these caps on, on spending to rein in the deficit. 2011, that was the year that gold topped out at 1900. And the idea that the government was finally going to get spending under control, right, that was part of the reason that gold sold off because the markets correctly understood that smaller deficits is bad for gold. If the U.S. is going to get its fiscal house in order, that benefits the dollar and therefore that undercuts the need to buy gold as an alternative to the dollar. And, you know, initially the deficits were coming down. And one of the reasons they came down was because they, they were so elevated in the first you know, year or two of the Obama administration, right? The deficits were very high uh, because of the, the recession. And as the Fed's monetary stimulus produced another bubble, that bubble enabled uh, the government to get more tax revenue, uh, sp kept spending in check a little bit. And of course, interest rates remained low. That enabled us to continue to refinance the debt on the short end. That enabled us to mask the cost of the debt because the debt service payments went down. And so the budget deficits were getting smaller, you know, certainly in, during Obama's second term. And that lended credibility to the idea that uh, deficits were going away, that the U.S. was acting more fiscally responsibly. And the 2011 uh, bill uh, was, you know, helping to push us in that direction because it had caps on, on government spending and required all sorts of trade-offs and things like that, that that kept the budget in line. Well, now that 2019 is the year that we basically tore all that up, like we destroyed all that progress that we made. Uh, a lot of it, of course, was pretense. I remember at the time in 2011, when everybody was so excited about this, I was saying it's bullshit. It's not going to happen. They're going to find ways of squirming around it. Uh, a future Congress is going to change it, right? Because anything that's enacted today can be changed tomorrow. So whatever the government agrees on doing stuff in the future and tries to take credit for it in the present, I, I always know it's BS because whatever they're taking credit for is never going to happen because you can't bind a future Congress. What you pass today can be undone tomorrow. And that's exactly what is now happening. But since 2011 was the year gold topped out because you know we adopted the pretense of fighting deficits and, and getting our fiscal house in order, well, now that that pretense has been officially abandoned because we basically dismantled it, well, this is a perfect time for gold to explode higher because now that you know we're, we're throwing all caution to the wind, 2019 could be the year that gold explodes and it's not going to be the end. It's just the beginning of something much, much bigger. And again, if the dollar loses 
its role as the reserve currency, which I expect. And now even I read an article, I think it was uh, at JP Morgan and one of the big banks uh, was now writing about the fact that it too expects the dollar to lose its status as the reserve currency. I have a feeling that that status is going to be lost a lot sooner than they think. And it's also going to have a much more profound impact on the economy than they think, because America derives a enormous benefit from issuing the reserve currency. And that benefit is going to be lost. And again, we are not going to move to the euro or move to the yen. I mean, everybody just assumes that the dollar's position is safe because there's no viable alternative, that we're not going to take the crown on King Dollar and put it on the euro, right? Or, uh, or, or crown the yen, right? That there's no replacement. And so by default, the dollar wins. But they are overlooking gold, right? There is no reason for the world to look for an alternative to the dollar when they can simply go back to the st- what we had before the dollar. Before the dollar became the reserve, Gold was the reserve. So let's just revert to that. We don't need to look for another fiat currency to replace one that didn't work. I mean, after all, if the dollar didn't work, why should the euro work any better or the yen? And in fact, when the dollar became the reserve currency, the main reason that that happened was because the dollar was backed by gold. It Not only backed by gold, it was convertible into gold. You could get gold on demand for your dollars, right? So that was the reason that the world accepted the dollar. They would never have accepted the dollar if it was backed by nothing. It was just a piece of paper. So if there's a dollar crisis, well, why would they just take the euro? For what? The euro's not backed by anything. Neither is the yen. So they got to go back to gold. And the minute the, the world's central banks go back to gold, well, the party's over for the United States, at least in the short run, because now we're going to have to back our currency by gold too. I mean, right now we don't back it by anything, right? I mean, we've got some gold supposedly in Fort Knox, I mean, I have no idea how much because I don't know when the last time it was audited, uh, but we're going to need more gold. And, you know, that's going to put a stop to the global gravy train. We're not going to be able to run these chronic trade deficits. If we want to consume, we're going to have to produce. And that is a big, big game changer. And the only way we're going to get back to a gold standard is if you have a huge increase in the price of gold, right? That's going to happen. That's the reason that I'm buying gold, that we're buying silver. But it's also going to mean that America is going to lose this gigantic subsidy. And so that America is going to suffer much more than other countries. In fact, there are going to be other countries who have been paying that subsidy to the United States. There are going to be winners and losers uh, when we move off the dollar standard and go back to sound money. Now, in the long run, everybody wins because sound money is beneficial to economic growth. So it benefits the middle class, it benefits the poor. But in the short run, you've got a lot of Americans who owe their standard of living to the fact that we conned the world into going off the gold standard onto the dollar standard. And they have been delivering this subsidy to Americans where we live beyond our means while the rest of the world lives beneath its means to make it possible. We get to consume products we didn't produce, consume resources that we didn't mine or didn't grow. We get to borrow money we didn't save. And we get to take a shortcut, right? Because we, we skip over all the heavy lifting and go right to the fun part. We go right to the consumption and we skip over the savings and the production. So all that is going to change. And the way that's going to happen is going to be a dramatic decline in the dollar, which results in a huge increase in the cost of living here in the United States. Now, I know a lot of people disagree with me because I there's a movement out there. There are a number of people out there, a number of analysts. I mean, they know who they are uh, who say, no, no, Peter, you're wrong. We're not going to have all this inflation. 
we're going to have deflation, right? It's going to be gigantic deflation. I think these people have it completely backwards. We're not going to have deflation at all. We are going to have inflation. You know, a lot of times, too, when people want to talk about deflation, they go back to the 1930s and they say, oh, we had all this deflation in the 1930s. And so we're going to have deflation now. Uh, these people miss the, uh, the differences and similarities between the U.S. now and the U.S. then. Back then, we were on a gold standard, right? We're not on a gold standard anymore. There's nothing preventing the government from printing money. And that's exactly what they're going to do. And it doesn't matter if debts are defaulted or not. The key is the ability of the Federal Reserve to monetize all those debts, to continue to create money out of thin air. But inflation is also going to be a function of demand. If America's creditors lose confidence in the dollar, then a lot of the dollars that are currently parked in bonds, right, and are not bidding up consumer goods, people are going to try to spend their money as quickly as they can to buy anything they can before the dollar loses even more value. And so you're going to have this spiral of, of inflation. I mean, if you want to view the price structure from the perspective of gold owner, right? If you're going to define gold as money, and if you're going to define deflation as falling prices, which it's really not. I mean, deflation is a contraction of the money supply and credit. I'm talking about prices. So when I talk about inflation is the result, I'm talking about the consumer prices going up. And when everybody says it's going to be deflation, they expect consumer prices to go down, right? That's why the deflation camp says, keep all your money in U.S. treasuries and U.S. dollars, which I think is the absolute worst thing that you could do. And the people who are preparing for deflation by loading up on dollars and treasuries are going to lose the most of all, right? But if you want to measure prices by real money in terms of gold, then the deflationist will be correct. If you own gold, you will see deflation because your cost of living will go down. The cost of everything that you consume will go down if you're paying for it with gold, right? That's why I'd advocate people open up an account at gold money, right? And keep your savings in gold. Because if you keep your savings in gold, then you're going to experience deflation in that everything that you buy is going to cost less. You will spend fewer grams of gold to buy things in the future than you would spend to buy those same things in the present. But since most people are not buying stuff with gold, they have dollar bills, right? They're not going to experience deflation. They're going to experience massive inflation. In fact, we may have just set the stage with what the president just agreed today with Congress and what the Fed's about to do. And the fact that I think that the socialists are going to come into power in a couple of years, we may have just laid the foundation for hyperinflation, which I've always said was the worst case scenario, which may in fact now be the most probable scenario. And so that is the worst possible outcome that, you, that you're going to have. And so you got to make sure that you are not prepared for deflation in that sense. You are not holding on to U.S. dollars and U.S. treasuries, but you got to be in gold. You got to be in gold stocks. And of course, when I say gold, I, I mean silver as well. In fact, more so now uh, than, than, than ever before. And you got to be invested internationally. You got to be invested in the, in the stocks of the countries that are going to benefit from the dollar losing its status as the reserve currency. Since America is the, is the winner, then America will lose when that status is lost. But if other countries are losing, if other countries are having to pay a subsidy to the United States for that privilege, when America loses that privilege, it loses that subsidy. And then the other nations that have been paying that subsidy no longer have to pay it anymore. So America's loss is somebody else's gain. So make sure that you make it into your gain. 
by investing your money in assets, in countries, in companies that will benefit from this transition. And by the way, my last call that I did on, on Bitcoin, uh, the uh, Bitcoin challenge, a lot of people liked it. We got a lot of positive feedback and a lot of people were emailing me uh, suggestions of the next challenge, the next uh, uh, live stream on YouTube. And so I'm going to do another one, same time, right? Same bat time, same bat channel, 9 p.m. Eastern oh, on Monday. Next Monday coming up, I will do another one live on YouTube. And the topic is going to be inflation, deflation. It's kind of like a deflation challenge. So if you're in that deflation camp, if you're convinced that, you know, the dollar's going way up and consumer prices are going way down, right? If you're a Harry Dent kind of guy who thinks gold's going to 400 and the Dow is going to go down uh, even more and, and, you know, you got to keep all your money in U.S. Treasuries, if you're in that camp, then I want you in this, uh, in this, uh, on this live stream, I want you making your points so that I can address them. Uh, now, also, if you have any questions, if you're not sure, is it going to be inflation or deflation and you want to ask me a question or you want to ask me something to defend my position, you heard somebody say something, you know, they have that ridiculous milkshake theory uh, where, oh, everybody's going to rush into the dollar. And, you know, as I've explained before, I think that theory is all wet. Uh, but I'm willing to get into, uh, you know, the details on that uh, on the uh, the live stream. So it's going to be the deflation challenge, uh, definitive inflation, deflation debate. So if you believe inflation is coming, you believe deflation is coming, make sure you uh, participate at my YouTube channel, uh, 9 o'clock, that's 6 o'clock Eastern time. These are U.S. Uh, time zones. The calendar date on that would be July 29th, right? So that's going to be just a day or two before the Federal Reserve is going to be cutting interest rates, which again, I think is fueling the inflation argument. Cheap money, bigger deficits have historically always been uh, the seeds of inflation. How anybody can believe that it's going to end any other way is beyond me. And I will prove it definitively on the 29th uh, with my live stream on YouTube. So don't miss it. Thank you.